chapter 2 and go through where we read this morning through verse 5 and entitle the message, I do not frustrate the grace of God. The word frustrate means to prevent or to thwart the power or the ability of something. How do we frustrate the grace of God? We shouldn't think of frustrating God or His grace in the sense that God is kind of wringing His hands saying, I don't know what to do with these people. They, they prevent me from doing my work. But more like what Jesus encountered in His own country in Mark 6 and Matthew 13, where He was not received in His own country as a prophet. And the writers said in two different ways, He could do no mighty works there, or He did no mighty works there. Just a few, because of their unbelief. Did they tie the arms of omnipotence? Did they put Christ in handcuffs so that He could not do mighty works? No, it was not an external restraint. It was internal. Because God is committed to working the miracles through Christ in that day in a way that exalts His own honor. But there was total unbelief and rejection of the gospel. So Jesus could not do many mighty works because He would not. Likewise, when we frustrate the grace of God, we put ourselves in a position. We get in a different lane with God so that the showers and blessings and waterfall of grace start to dry up like a a dry drought in the summer where the rain will not fall. God is so committed to His glory, the glory of His grace that the Spirit binds Himself to act and to work in tandem with the Word in such a way that grace comes to us by means of faith, not works, and grace comes to us for the glory and the exaltation of Christ. When we get out of the lane of faith, the pipeline, the river, the channel of grace begins to dry up, just like the brook Kidron dried up when Elijah was there drinking from it in the three years of drought. How can we frustrate the grace of God today? Well, Paul says, if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. You say, well, we get that. We understand that you can't be right with God based on your works. But the main error that Paul is dealing with here is starting to run the race by grace and then trying to finish in your own strength. Let me give you three modern errors that are related to the Galatian error that we are susceptible to. These three I've given you before. We just put them together right here. The first one is creating a dichotomy between justifying righteousness and sanctifying righteousness. By dichotomy, I mean totally separating them as something totally separate. Now, they are separate, but there's something... It is common for both of them. In justifying righteousness, we are passive. We simply by faith look at the work of Christ and we receive it. We don't do anything. We're still ungodly, according to Romans 4.4. Sanctifying righteousness, on the other hand, we're active. We're pursuing holiness. We're seeking to obey God. Now that's different, but what brings them together is that they're both by faith in Jesus Christ, which means they're both by grace. We have to figure out how is it that running the race is all of grace, even though I'm actually doing the running. I was talking to a sister years ago. She was trying to explain her understanding of justifying righteousness versus sanctifying righteousness. 
or the righteousness that gets me to heaven versus the righteousness that we're told to sort of work out. And this is what she said. In so many words, she said, justifying righteousness is all about Christ's righteousness, but sanctifying righteousness is all about self-righteousness. Now, to give her the benefit of the doubt, I think she was trying to express what she had been taught and what is largely taught in Christianity today. You did run well, Galatian churches, but what hindered you? You shifted into the lanes of self-righteousness, of the flesh, of the works of the law, and grace began to dry up. Are you running that way today? You started well, relying fully upon Christ's righteousness, but because it seemed, as the songwriter said, that your righteousness was taking part, you took off the breastplate of imputed righteousness, and you began to run in your own strength. That's one very modern, very relevant error in Christianity today. Secondly, a phrase that was coined by a political theorist by the name of Algeny Sidney, unusual name, years ago, they coined the phrase, so I have read, God helps those that help themselves. It was later more widely used because Benjamin Franklin put it in one of his Poor Richard Almanacs in the 1700s, and then it started to be widely used. That's patently not true. Isaiah 40 says, God gives power to those that have no might. None. We don't bring our help to God. We, we don't start the race in our strength, and we get going, and then God comes along and just kind of gives us a little help along the way. Oh, it's all grace. Justifying righteousness and the race that you're commanded to run is all mercy. It is not of him that willeth or of him that runneth. You are willing. You're running. It is God that showeth mercy. So that's a very modern error today. The third one, you will sometimes hear by famous people who've gone through a great trial of adversity. Maybe an athlete, through the adversity, he wins a championship. Or some other famous person who everyone knows had great adversity. And when they're interviewed, everyone wants to know, how did you do it? How did you make it? And I've heard one particular man say, well, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Translated, I handled it, right? God just gave me the adversity. I took the adversity. I, I, I pulled myself up and I just handled it and ran. That's patently false. If you're trying to live that way, beloved, grace is shut out and shut up. And you're falling out of grace like the churches of Galatia. Now, what's the point? We are susceptible to such error, aren't we? We are susceptible that after we've been running, particularly a little, little while in the Christian faith, I mean, you know, I kind of know how to put one step in front of the other now. We move out away from the gospel, away from Christ. And Paul says, if that's the way righteousness comes, justifying or sanctifying, no, he's not dichotomizing, just righteousness, the full picture, that which is given to you freely by gift or that which you participate in, if it comes through any other way than the cross, you don't need Jesus. You don't need a Savior. You don't need grace. In fact, Paul's point to the Galatian church, you don't have grace. Now he's saying this not because he thinks these people aren't saved. He's going to remind them of a past experience. 
that demonstrates they are. He's trying to graciously pull them back under the waterfall of God's grace so that they start running in a way that's well, once again, in obedience to the truth in such a way that grace crowns it all. It's all of grace, isn't it, beloved? From start to finish. The grace of God brings salvation. What salvation? All of it. All of it. Grace brings it all. So what I want to do this morning is look at the four rhetorical questions. Beginning in verse 2. And you can answer them just as soon as they're read. Right? We'll look at the four rhetorical questions, what Paul is saying. And then I want to give you four words of application. It's just a single word. All beginning with the word P. Worked out kind of nicely that way. That I think when we are applying those words, it's going to help us not fall into the error of the Galatians and keep running well by grace through faith to the glory of God and not in the lane of by flesh through the law by the works of self-righteousness. Okay, so that's where we're going. Question number one, verse two. This only what I learn of you. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish having begun? Now what's Paul doing? He's taking them back to the initial experience when the Spirit manifests itself, himself among them. I would take you back this morning. I would take you back to your conversion if you've been converted whether that was last week or 20 years ago. How did the Spirit manifest Himself with a deep assurance? Galatians chapter 4. You've been given the Spirit of Sonship. For these people, was it when they came under the knife and got circumcised and then the Spirit came? Of course not. What was the first workings of the Spirit in your life when He produced love? How did that love come? Was it because you worked so hard? You ate the right foods and abstained from the foods you knew God didn't want you to? Is it because of the way you spoke, the way you dressed, or any other way? No. It was through the hearing of faith. Now, the works of the law represents the Mosaic law, and for Paul's point, circumcision. They thought, Jesus is a good start, but if you really want to finish the race, so the Jewish people from James were convincing them, persuading them falsely, you need to add something to it. You need to make a contribution, something that comes well from you. Paul says, that's to make vain the whole cross. What you have is a would-be Savior that he got almost the job done, he got 99% done, he did just as much as he could, and now if you could complete the equation, and just just circumcision, that's just just a small thing. Paul says Christ is dead in vain. So Paul takes them back to their initial experience of conversion, and they answer, you know, within themselves, well, Paul, you got us there. It certainly wasn't doing anything. We were just sitting there in the synagogue in Acts 13 in Antioch, Pisidia. That's southern Galatia, the first missionary journey of Paul. And Paul starts unpacking the gospel, starting with the Old Testament prophets, and then talking about the resurrection of Christ. And what happened? The hearing of faith. 
They received it, embraced it, trusted in it, relied upon it, treasured it. And the Spirit manifested Himself among them. Even in the sign gifts of the miracles of verse 5. The early church had the sign gifts of speaking in tongues and doing miracles. How did that come? In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit falls. When? Through the hearing of the gospel. Through faith. Not through works. Now what's interesting here to observe is that Paul seems to use interchangeably the Spirit with the gospel. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Who did that? Paul did. Acts 13. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. He goes back to Antioch of Syria, reports all that God had done among the Gentiles. This is a church mixture of Jews and Gentiles. They're convincing the Gentiles you need to be circumcised. Now, when you receive the Spirit or the Gospel, how did you receive it? Paul painted a portrait of Jesus Christ and crucified. A full, complete picture. Totally filled out. Not a picture where you supplied some of the colors or some of the paint. It was a total, complete picture of righteousness. Totally satisfied. And freely given. Through faith. So what we see here is that the Spirit binds Himself to work in connection with the Gospel or the Word of Truth. That's something that we need to understand. If we are to have the waterfall of God's grace coming to us through faith so that we are walking in the pathway of truth and love, how is the Spirit going to produce that but by the Gospel? Of Jesus Christ, the word of truth, not some other avenue. Now, listen to John 16, where Jesus makes this point about the coming comforter. And I'm going to turn there and read John 16, verse 8. And when he has come, John 16, the Gospel of John, verse 8, and when he has come, he will reprove or convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, this is very important for missions and evangelism. You need to know how the Spirit works. He will come and He will convict of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Of sin, why Jesus? Because they don't believe on Me. Nobody trusts in Jesus savingly until they come to the place to believe what? They're sinners. A gospel without sin is not a gospel. A gospel that says, receive Jesus without acknowledging we're totally incapable and we're sinners is no gospel. And that gospel is being preached all over the world. Just take Jesus on. Just believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, and have a happy life. No, you cannot believe savingly. Because the Spirit convinces sinners of what? They have broken the law. There is no hope in themselves. There is no way they could save themselves. And their only hope is the crucifixion of Christ. Of righteousness. Why? Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Now how is Jesus going to the Father? By the gospel. By death, burial, resurrection. So it's not just believing anything. So we first believe that we're sinners, then we turn to Christ's righteousness, 
and receive the full Christ, the gospel, because he raised him from the dead. You see the progression here. This is what the spirit of truth will do. This is how he works. So we stay in tandem with the spirit. We understand that when we speak the gospel, we must talk about sin. That's not optional. And then we talk about his righteousness. He fulfilled the law of righteousness. That gives hope. And then of judgment. Why, Jesus? Because the prince of this world is judged. He's cast out. His dominion, his rule, his power has been thwarted by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the churches of Galatia experienced that because they were effectually called by the Spirit, awakened to their condemnation, and brought and drawn effectually to Jesus Christ. That's how any sinner is drawn to Christ. It's by the work of the grace of God to create something in the soul that does not exist because no man can come to Jesus. What does that mean? It means no man can come to Jesus. What does that mean? It means you can't come to Jesus. You can't will it. You can't work it. But the Holy Spirit brings us effectually. He takes the By his truth.
drink. John 7, 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which was not yet given. This he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. We don't tie His hands. He leads us. We walk in the Spirit. We're not leading the way. He's leading the way. But the Spirit so connects Himself with the Word of God for the glory of Christ that He does it through hearing of faith, believing what's heard. So how critical is it then for the Spirit's work in your life for the Gospel, the Word, to be part of your life? Either the hearing right now or the hearing through the week, 
or your intake of the Word of God. Would we not say then that the measure of the Spirit's work is a reflection of your work or your trust, your belief in Scripture and how you're hearing what God says? Not just here, just a, just a part of it. And so Paul first points back to their past experience and said, when you receive the Spirit, that's the day you were converted, you received the gospel. How did that happen? They embraced it. They received Christ through the message that Paul preached. And they were to stay with that message, which is what they were no longer doing. They were moving to a system of works, self-reliance, independence, self-trust. Now here's our one word application first to help us guard against the Galatian error. Poverty. Poverty. We must remain poor in spirit the first year, the tenth year, or the twentieth year of being a Christian. Blessed are the poor in spirit is not a past tense kind of condition. It's an abiding condition. We are to be poor. We are to acknowledge daily our inability to run, to walk, to do, to be whatever God calls us to be. There is a conscious awareness of our bankruptcy before God that says, God, I can't do this without you. It's impossible. Isn't that really the point of the Sermon on the Mount that we heard at the conference this week? You know, is Jesus just really giving a deeper meaning of the law so that the people could go do it? Was that the point? You know, the Pharisees got the external part. That's all they were concerned about. Jesus gives us the spirit of the law. Is the sum of then the Sermon on the Mount to say, okay, now I need you to do both, not just external. I want you to do the internal too. That's not it, beloved. Is it? If the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, is Jesus working against His own law? If the law makes sin exceeding sinful, was that what Jesus was doing with the Sermon on the Mount? I think it was. You see, the end at the end they should have said, I can't stop lusting. See, the law said, don't commit adultery. Jesus said, I'm going to add something to it. Don't lust. Was he saying, just stop it already. Quit. No, he's saying, you can't quit without me. The law said, do not kill people. Jesus said, the Spirit is, quit killing people with your words. Quit destroying people in your relationship with your words. Okay, all right. You said quit, I'll quit. I can't quit. I can't. That's bankruptcy. See, the minute you think you can, you're in the air of the Galatians. Love your enemy. The law said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Jesus says, I say, love your enemies. Okay. We had one of the questions at the conference. I think one of them said, I can't love my enemy. <laughs> Bingo! That's, that's what Jesus is saying. If I had to sum the whole Sermon on the Mount with three words, it would be this. Come to me, Jesus says. And now, through me, I'm going to help you with the problem called lust. 
those words that keep spewing out of your mouth, you'll never stop without me because without me you can do nothing. That means nothing. Nothing. But the Galatians thought now they could do something. Jesus kind of gave them a push, got them started. But these Jewish people came, up, came along and said, look, you just need to start pedaling that bike. Go on. He's okay with this. He's not. Then Christ has died in vain. If you can sanctify in your own strength, if you can really obey God in your own strength, if you can pursue holiness apart from the Spirit, then you don't need a Savior and the death of Christ is meaningless, according to Paul. So poverty, poverty, poverty. We need to remind ourselves again and again, not just with platitudes, but really, Lord, I I can't stop. I need you. I need you. Question number two. Are you so foolish, having begun? Now, they should have answered, Paul, you're right. We didn't begin by being circumcised. When we heard the message, we just, the Spirit manifested itself. We were converted. We were called. He began His work. We just rested in it. You began that way, so now are you made perfect by the flesh, which really gets to the heart of the Galatian error. They weren't saying... We don't need Jesus at all. We need Him for justifying righteousness. We just think when it comes to this thing called holiness, you know, we could probably add a few things to that. Together, you know, together we can get the job done. So Paul really gets to the heart. If that's how you started, do you think the Spirit then backs up and grace backs out and then come the works and you're going to be made perfect, complete, carried out, accomplished, this race by the flesh. Rhetorical answers clearly. No, it's the hearing of faith. The Spirit keeps working through the Word, through the hearing, or the believing and the trusting and the embracing and the treasuring and the, the relying upon what God is saying through the Word. And then we run. Just a subtle, subtle difference, but large when we miss it in our thinking and in our attitudes and in our souls. Now here's the real tricky part. The fact is, is that in verse 3, there is a race. The Bible doesn't deny. And there's people running. Paul even says, Know you not that they that run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run. As Paul contradicted himself. Sometimes we think, let go and let God, you know. Well, if I hear you right, preacher, I'm just going to kind of forget about obedience, forget about running, and if the Spirit wants me to run, He'll just come waft me away and I'll start floating and running. That's what makes it kind of challenging here. It's all about the way we think about what we do, not just about what we're doing, right? The Pharisees were doing something, and the Galatians were running right now, but they weren't running well. So again, they need to shift back into the right lane and keep running, but they need to run by grace through faith, to the glory of God, instead of running by works of the law, by flesh. And what that means is, the flesh is that old independent man who rejects the mercy of God and wants to do it in their own strength. Ever notice that at the youngest age? You know, the two-year-old boy? He's trying to tie a shoe, and you know it is impossible. There is no way he could ever tie his shoe. And you walk up, let me help you with that. No. 
what is going on in that boy's mind already manifesting itself that he clearly can't see, that he can't tie the shoe, and that the man there, his dad, can easily tie it in a few seconds. It's the pride of life. There's something in us that enjoys independence and being made much of because I tied my own shoe. Now, let me just be quick to say, boys, you need to learn how to tie your own shoes. That's just an illustration, right? There's a problem if you can't tie your shoe and you're getting over. You know, you're just lazy. Tie your shoe. But with God, we are never independent of God. And so the flesh desires the experience of independence because he loves doing it by himself. It feels good. And he loves the accolades for everybody saying, you're so good and smart and strong. Look at you, you good boy. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't say that, but we need to counter that sometimes, right? You're such a good boy. Okay, honorable boy, good boy, but we're sinners. There's nothing good in us. And the way we express that sin nature is a, a, a fleshly desire for independence that at times starts to move away from the grace of God and says, you know, I think I can run this race. I think I can manage this. See, it's clear the Spirit starts His work, the Spirit is the one that finishes, and the Spirit keeps it all the way through by grace. Paul makes this point, Philippians 1, 6, where the same two words are used. There's only two places in the Bible, I think, where begin is used, where Paul says, having begun, and the word Perfect is used elsewhere, but Paul uses it in Philippians 1.6 as complete to make this point. He would, he would say to the church at Philippi, I'm praying always for you, making mention of my prayers with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing. When Paul thinks about this church and how at the beginning of the gospel, when he came to Philippi, Lydia was converted, the Philippian jailer was converted. How? The hearing of faith. Paul's preaching... God opens the heart, they receive it by faith, and they're baptized. The hearing of faith. From that day to the day that Paul wrote Philippians chapter 1 in prison, they had been having fellowship in the gospel that they heard. So Paul was being confident that it would continue. Why? Because he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it. That's the same Greek word. Until the day of Jesus Christ. The Spirit begins the work, and the Spirit finishes the work. What was happening at Galatia? The Spirit started the work, but now they were trying to complete it with an independence from the cross that moved them from the position of being like a child to being like an adult. You know, the Bible never mentions adult children of God or adult people of God. It's just children of God. And as a child, we remain dependent. No matter how old we get, no matter how long we're running, we go deeper and deeper and deeper in our dependence upon God. Now look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. And the problem with their thinking on trying to finish in flesh and the works of the law is that the law is powerless and the flesh is powerless to get the job done. And that's the, Paul, the point Paul makes in Galatians 4. 
He would say in verse 8 of Galatians 4, Howbeit then, when you knew not God, ye did service unto them which were by nature no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Now notice two things, the word again. He's talking to Gentiles here. Well, they never had the law. Now in Galatians 4, what Paul is saying is the Mosaic age was an age of elementary principles, rudiments, beginning things, building blocks, ABCs, linking logs. You know, the things you give your children to learn, how to build things like move on to something else. It was a shadow of a substance that arrived in Christ, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Paul is saying, you were under tutors and governors. We don't go back to tutors and governors. The Spirit has come. We're in a new age where the Spirit is at work in all of His people. Then he turns to the Gentiles and says, why are you trying to go back to the age of shadows again when you did service to them that were no gods? And the point he's making is that just like the gods that you serve were weak and beggarly and powerless, so is the Mosaic age, weak and beggarly and powerless. The law is powerless. The Ten Commandments have no power to do what God calls you to do. Why do we keep using it that way then? Now let's see what Paul means here in Galatians 4. How did they service to the gods which are no gods? By nature just means inherently they, they, didn't, they were not omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. They just didn't have the inherent qualities of God because they're not God. So what were they doing in service to those by nature who are no gods? Well, Paul tells us in Titus 3.3 3, when he did the same thing, they were serving or enslaved to diverse lusts and pleasures. So they look to the gods of the figment of their imagination, which are no gods. They are powerless to do what? To satisfy your desires and pleasures. They have no power. That's why you're so empty. That's why we live in a culture of drugs and alcohol and depression. Because people are empty and they don't know why. And they're just serving all kinds of lust and pleasure. The gods of the world are powerless. They have no power to satisfy. All right, what about the Mosaic Law? It doesn't either. That's his point. You're turning again, not to the Mosaic Law, but to a god, a substitute god, the law to do what it never could do, and you're trying to satisfy your independence and your desire to be made much of by a law that cannot do it. Now, how do we know I'm tracking because of Galatians 5. Walk in the Spirit, you shall not gratify the lust of the flesh. For the, for the flesh is lusting against the Spirit. What does that tell us? What they're trying to do with circumcision is gratify their desire for the glory of men by taking the law and trying to get it to do what it cannot do. Gratify their desires. Lust cannot be gratified and the law cannot gratify you. That's why He, speaking of the law as a person, brings you to the one that can. Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. 
the gospel. So what is the Spirit doing when He brings you to Christ? He's bringing you to fulfillment. Can't you see that, church? Can't I see that? Why are we turning to so many false gods? In our own experience, we know again and again, they're weak, they're beggarly, they're powerless, or else we'd be content. But you're not. And I'm not. When I turn to my own flesh, And so, what was their initial experience when the Spirit came, when Christ was lifted up? They experienced a contentment in just resting in the power of Jesus through the truth of the gospel. How? The hearing of faith. See, you're not made perfect by the flesh. How are you made perfect? How are you brought to completion? How do you run the race? How do you get sanctified for those that are already sanctified? How do you grow in grace? By coming to Jesus, by the gospel, or as Paul implies here again, the answer is the hearing of faith, resting in the message of who Jesus is, what He is for you, and what He most assuredly is going to do in the future. Just rest in it. Second word application, prayer. Prayer. Now, if you're poor and empty, you ask somebody to fill you. See, that's the progression here. See, they're trying to fill their desires with the lust of the flesh. So what should we ask God for? God, satisfy me with your love. Because if you're poor and you acknowledge, I can't do this. I can't stop this. I can't do this. I'm powerless. And he says, come to me and ask me. Because I can. That's what the gospel's about. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith because the justified live by faith. They don't live by faith part of the time. They can go to works. They don't change lanes. They live by faith in the Son of God. So we should be asking, asking God to fill us with the Spirit. And that's what God enjoins us to do, isn't it? The the, the reflection of the measure of grace in our lives and the measure of how well we're running is a reflection of how much prayer is in your life. That's a painful thing, isn't it? When I hear that, I'm like, ouch. Because if I'm not praying, how am I running? I'm, I'm, I'm just getting up and doing it. Do the next thing, do the next thing, do the next thing. And I look back and say, how did that happen? I just ran in my own strength. That's why when I look back in the week, all my relationships are in carnage when that happens, right? Because the Spirit produces love, joy, peace. Because I wasn't going to the Word of Truth. I wasn't praying for God to give me the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. What happened? Just the opposite. Not long-suffering, short temper. Right? Not gentle, firm, angry, mad. All the things that are a product of the flesh, of the works of the flesh that are manifested, which are these in Galatians 5, right? So prayer then becomes the the, the weapon, the key to moving from poverty, which we remain in, to being filled again and again and again daily. We call out to God and ask Him, Lord, I can't be a husband. I, I just can't love like Christ loved the church. I can't love my wife like that. I can't even be a good dad. 
Do you think you can? Then you're in the Galatian air. You think you can be a good dad. Just, you know, read a few books. No, I, I can't. I'm in poverty, but I'm asking because you can give me the spirit that I need to put me on the pathway of love and peace and joy, of growing in it. See, this, this completing is a completing of the Spirit. We're growing in it, and that growth, prayer is critical. Prayer. Not just once in a while, but prayer. Asking God for His help. Will He not give the Holy Spirit to all that ask Him? We heard that uh, at, the sermon, uh, at the conference, right? What is he giving the Spirit for? So that you can love others. If you look at the context, the golden rule follows that. Luke 11, he gives the Spirit. Matthew 7, he gives good gifts to them that ask him so that you can love others. Which means what? The Spirit comes and fills us with the all-satisfying love of Christ so that when we get the good things from God that we ask for, what? We let them go. I mean, not all of them. We, we eat, we, we have clothes, stuff we eat. Rivers of water flow out. How? Prayer. Jesus said, ask, seek, knock. The Holy Spirit comes again and again and again. Why not just get Him initially and then don't ask because He's there? Because who gets the glory? The Spirit binds Himself to the truth of the gospel and the word of God's grace because Christ manifestly gets the glory through uh, prayer. When the Lord shall build up Zion, He shall appear in His glory. He shall hear the prayer of the poor, the destitute. He shall regard their prayer, which means poor people then pray for the Spirit so that God's name would be hallowed. Say, I'm poor in spirit. Wait a minute. How much do you pray? Beloved, this is not a a message of condemnation. It's a message to encourage you. Call out upon God and your Father will give you what you need. Right? See, the Galatians saw the Christian sanctification and progress kind of like riding a bike. I remember the first time, I think it was my dad, put me on a bike. <clears throat> I loved being on the bike. The problem is I couldn't reach the pedals. You know, He just kind of went around the circle with me. I couldn't do anything. It's kind of how we start, isn't it? Then I got the training wheels. You know, I, I could pedal the bike then. I still needed training wheels so I wouldn't fall over. Then the training wheels came off and my dad kind of walked along beside me, helped me out. Then I became independent. That's what's happening in Galatians. The Jews from James didn't say, look, give up on the cross. You can do it all yourself. I said, no, you got a good start. You had the training wheels. God is helping those that help themselves. You know, he's come along beside you. Now do this. When in reality, prayer is a reflection of just the opposite, isn't it? See, after a few years, you look back and you look back at your initial conversion, you realize, boy, there was a lot of independence there, wasn't there? I mean, there was more independence than I thought. God was so gracious, wasn't He? Then after a few years, I'm like, I like it when the Lord comes and walks along beside me and helps me steer the bike. Then after a few years, I'm like, Lord, could you, could you put the training wheels on? I'm, I'm feeling real unsure about being a dad and a husband. In fact, I, I think I've gone splat. So could you put the training wheels on? Then after a while, I looked down and said, Lord, I'm not even touching the pedals. 
That's growth, isn't it? The other's not growth. That's independence. We grow in this place. I can't even steer the bike. Lord, I'm poor. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I'm calling out. Third question. Galatians 3. Verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain? If it yet be in vain, the word suffered means to experience, to feel, undergo. It could mean something good, mean something bad. Here, the translators chose the word for something bad like persecution. But it could mean just an experience of something good. So when the Spirit came among you, what you experienced, was it just sham? A waste of time? Now, if Paul means here the blessings of the Spirit, all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, the overwhelming blessings that flooded their soul when they received the gospel. Was that just, were you wrong? No, no, we, that was genuine. Do you remember that time? Now you've been running the race a while, just rigor mortis sets in, cynicism, trial. Now if he means suffering, which would mean persecution, there's no specific persecution mentioned in this letter, but we know the early church suffered persecution. Have you suffered so many things? Was that all in vain? What would that mean? You could say, yeah, that was a waste of time. I suffered. I think Paul is pointing to a a root here, a common denominator, that if we said it was the experience of blessings, or as the writer said here, the experience of suffering, what's the common root? Joy. Did anybody find joy at conversion? Just the blessing of being summoned into the courtroom of God and hearing the Supreme Court Justice of the universe say, Not guilty. No condemnation. Now I find in Christ Jesus. Joy. And then suffering comes. Now how did you endure that suffering? Was not the root of your suffering or the root of your endurance joy? I think Paul's pointing to the initial experience of joy. Joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? This is what Hebrews said in Hebrews 12 too. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That harmonizes with what Paul is saying. He starts the race for you. He finishes it. And all the way in the continuum for start to finish, His grace sustains us by faith. He, he began the race that you're in. He started it. Now what was the first experience that the Spirit gave you or Jesus gave you when He created faith in you. You looked at Jesus. Looking to Jesus, looking at Jesus, the author of your faith. The aim of the Spirit in awakening your dead soul from a life of death and darkness to light in Christ is to look upon His face. How? Gospel. Scripture. Now what is that experience? Joy. It was joyful. The aim of Christ in begetting in you something that does not exist in a dead man's soul because dead men cannot hear, cannot will, cannot come. He creates faith and He shows you His face through the gospel message. Christ has been evidently set forth among you crucified. That's what you saw. 
then how does he keep it going? How does he keep sustaining your faith? By looking at Jesus. We don't look to ourselves then. I know we do that. We don't start looking at ourselves. We look at him. So faith is sustained in suffering, which is Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, by looking at Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. What was the root of Christ's own endurance? We look to him as sovereign Savior. Now we look to him as an example of endurance, and it was joy set before him. By what means was joy set before him? By means of promises, and that's our third application word. First there's poverty, then there's prayer, and now we turn to promises. What had God said to his son? Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. You will not stay in the grave, son. You will be brought to my right hand. Restore unto me the glory that I had with you for the foundation of the world. He rested in the promises of God. And he endured suffering. Paul says, your experience, whether it was experience of blessing here, the translator says, your suffering, was it vain? No, because it was rooted in the Spirit's manifestation among you of a deep assurance and joy that caused you to endure that suffering. The flesh cannot do that, right? You fill yourself with the lust of the flesh and when suffering comes, you're gone. Law can't do it. Flesh can't do it. It's powerless. Christ alone. My hope in life and death, Christ alone can do that. And that's what they experience in their suffering. We know this too because in Acts chapter 13 in the last verse we heard read this morning when Paul went to Antioch, Pisidia, he was in the synagogue, he preached the gospel. That's Galatia. That's southern Galatia. What does it say? The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Ghost at conversion. Was that joy just a sham? No, Paul. No, We experience the love of God in Christ. What's Paul doing? He's drawing them back into grace. See, If you're justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. Paul is, by the truth of the gospel, the Spirit is bringing them back under the waterfall. Now this is how we run the race with Jesus. He's with you. He's in you. You're not going to make it that way. Stay with the Spirit. Stay with me. We stand upon promises because the promises by means of the truth are what produce love. Because faith worketh by love. Faith in what? The gospel promises. Our God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory. The Philippian church had given money for Paul. What are we going to do? How are we going to eat? Our God has promised to supply all your need according to His riches in glory. Okay. Here it is. They loved on the basis of promises, which means the sufficiency of God got the glory and not man. And that's how it works with us. That we're poor, we pray, we turn to the promises and stand on them. And then, 
We practice. Now here, here it is, see? We can't leave that out. See? The poor prayer, prayerful promises that we look to then causes us to move out and perform. But not that kind of performance. The Galatians were performing with the lust of the flesh and the works of the law. We want to perform by grace through faith in the promises of God so that when we minister, it's the Spirit working through us. And that's the last rhetorical question, verse 5. He therefore, here's the conclusion, Paul could hit a period, an exclamation point, close the book, and it should be over. But in the purposes of God, he's going to really unpack their wrong thinking. Just goes back to their experience and says, Therefore, based on the answers to these questions, He that supplied the Spirit to you and worked miracles among you, how did He do it? Because you got circumcised or because you kept the Ten Commandments? No, Paul. We heard the Gospel. The Spirit came in the spiritual gifts. This could be apostolic gifts. Paul worked miracles among them. He was, he wrought, God wrought special miracles through Paul, the book of Acts. But in 1 Corinthians 12, the, the, the church there had the gift of miracles. So they had the early sign gifts. Now how did the Spirit come? Through the Gospel, through the Word. So now they were ministering. They were actually doing the ministering of the gifts just as we are to minister to one another with the gifts of Christ. How? By grace, through faith, so that God gets the glory for it. That's what Peter says, right? 1 Peter 4.10 As every man hath received the gift, if you're a believer, you've received the gift, a gift, many gifts. Even so, minister, served the gift as good stewards of the manifest, uh, manifold, multifaceted grace of God. So grace comes to you at conversion with gifts that are going to be empowered by the Spirit. So God says through Peter, serve it. Serve your gift. Don't, don't put it aside. Don't lay it aside. Be serving one another. Then Peter gives the two categories of gifts. Sometimes they're outlined differently in the Bible. If any man speak, let him speak the oracles of God. So if you're going to speak or preach, speak God's oracles of the Bible. If any man minister or serves, everybody has that gift here. Let him do it serving as of the ability, the strength that God is giving present participle for His own glory. Now how are you going to do that? Right? Did I do that in my strength or His? God aims to get glory through your running, through your serving as He ministers and supplies the Spirit to you So that when we serve or preach or teach or labor, we're going to do it, we're going to strive to do it in the strength and ability that God is giving so that God at the end of the day gets all the glory for your ministry. How does that happen? Well, of course, the first answer, according to Paul, is the hearing of faith through the Spirit, which means this. Poverty, prayer, Promises, now go practice. When that's your mindset, the Spirit is working in a manifest way that what's coming out of your life and your mouth is to God be the glory. Let's pray.